This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark 9, which is our passage. I think there are people passing out Bibles as well. If you need one, raise your hand and I'll, we'll get one for you. You heard the passage read, of course. Uh, there's a few different ways that we can tackle this passage this morning. The first is we could focus on Jesus' words to cut off that thing that is causing you to sin. And we can have a discussion this morning about very practical application of addressing very specific sins, and maybe even working through some specific sins and saying, here's how we want to tackle this, here's what it might look like to cut that off and address it. That is a good and worthwhile conversation to have. Uh, but I'm going to leave that conversation to happen in the context of redemption communities and, and smaller communities. We can really drill, drill down on specific things. And furthermore, I'm going to leave that conversation because that is not the main thrust of what Jesus is communicating here. You might be comforted to know that plucking out your eye is not Jesus' real-world application for you on how to address your sin in the moment. He's speaking in hyperbole to prove a point. And the point is that you and I probably don't take sin as seriously as we should do. And perhaps, even, we don't understand what sin is, really, to begin with. So, along those lines, I was thinking about this last night. As I lay there, scrolling through my phone, looking at different news stories, uh, one in particular caught my attention about a certain gentleman named Donald Trump. Perhaps you've heard of him, he's been in the news recently. Uh, Donald Trump and the story about his faith. So you can see where that caught my attention. Uh, and it is a story about how Donald, can I call him Donald or I'll call him Donald? It's how Donald uh, <laughs> confesses to be a Presbyterian. And, and in the interview, he says that he loves the Lord. Uh, and the interviewer asks him if he's ever asked for forgiveness for his actions, which is a great question to ask Donald Trump. So the, the interviewer asks, okay, so you love the Lord and you love the church. Have you ever asked forgiveness for your actions? And Donald's answer was, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I think if I do something wrong, I don't bring God into that picture. Uh, so, it's, it's easy to pick on Donald. The more challenging thing for us this morning, and as we leave here this morning, and the more important thing is recognizing similar confusion and similar tendencies in ourselves. Um, as I thought about it more, I realized perhaps Donald was being intentional, subconscious or not, not using the word sin in his answer, but instead using the phrase, when I do something wrong. Because the truth is, those are two different things. Sinning and doing something wrong are two different things. And no one needs to ask forgiveness for doing something wrong when doing something wrong means getting a math problem wrong. You don't need forgiveness from God for just doing that wrong, right? To remove God from the equation is to really undermine the very definition of sin because sin is inherently defined in relationship to God, in relation to God. See, sin is rooted in our desires to live on our own terms 
to be our own God. And that desire manifests itself in conscious, willful action to reject the will of God and do whatever we want to do. Namely, that will of God that is communicated to us in God's word. See, it's the universal disease of humankind. This desire to live on our own terms, this desire to be our own God, to remove ourselves from out under the authority of the true God and say, you know what, I'm good. I'd rather do what I want. I'd rather do what I want in this instance, and I'd rather do what I want in my life, broadly speaking. And we all know that the world is not as it should be. As we look around, we see so much pain, so much despair, so much hurt. We all agree that this world is not as it should be. And the reason it is not as it should be is because we all want to be our own gods and do what we want. And in order to be our own gods and do what we want, we're willing to hurt other people to do it. That's why the world is not as it should be. And this rejecting of the will of God and doing what we want is ultimately an act of rebellion. It's a rebellion against God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. It's a rebellion against the God who gave us life to begin with, who knows how things ought to be, who knows what this world is supposed to be, who created all things good. It's a rejection and a rebellion against him and saying, thank you for creating me, thank you for giving me life, thank you for creating this beautiful creation, I'm good, I'm going to use it, however, I don't, I don't need hear what you have to say. I don't want to follow you. I'd rather be my own God. It's an act of rebellion against God the Creator, but it is also an act of rebellion against the same God, who is also the Savior and restorer of the broken world. See, God created all things good. We know this in Scripture. Perhaps we don't dwell on that truth as much as we should. That when God created all things, they were functioning as they should be. God's creation was good. It was flourishing. It was in submission to his will. And it was sin that came into the picture and stained and distorted and broke it all. That's the tragedy of the fall. And when we dwell on the goodness, and imagine the goodness of God's original creation, the tragedy of the fall becomes all that much greater at once. We understand the way of the fall. But the beauty of the gospel is that God did not decide, okay, this creation is stained, this creation is distorted, this creation is broken, I'm just going to scrap it, I'm going to get rid of it all. That's not what God said. Instead, God said, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to make it new again. And in order to do that, I need to reverse the effects of the where sin came in and broke it and destroyed it, I need to get sin out once again. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to set things right. And so this is the double tragedy of sin. It's sin that separated us from God in the first place. It's sin that sent the world into a self-induced, self-destructive chaos. But it's also a sin that keeps separating us from God. Even as, it, even as he is at work setting things right again and inviting us back into relationships to his us. It's the double tragedy of sin. It's what separated us from him 
from him in the first place. This will keep separating us from him, even as he's working to set all things right. And the setting things right that we talk about, when we talk about that, what we're talking about is the kingdom. And the kingdom is the place where God is God and his authority is full and everything is in submission to him. And it's the place where all things are as they should be. It's the place where all things are flourishing. It's the place where there's no more death, where there's no more pain, where there's no more tears. All things are in submission to his will. And before we get turned off by that word submission, the truth is whether we believe it or not, whether we recognize it or not, that's ultimately what we long for. Every single one of us, Christian or not, we long for creation to be back in submission to our good creator, God. That's what we all long for. And maybe we react against that word, maybe we fear that. But it's in submission to as well as everything I said. There's no more death. There's no more pain. And that's why when Jesus is doing his earthly ministry, and he heals someone, he's able to say, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. This broken bone, this healed bone, this healed disease, the setting of things right. This is the kingdom. This is as it should be. You're getting a picture of what it will ultimately be right here. The kingdom is at hand when I heal this person. This is the end game of history. This is where all things are made. This is what we all long for. And scripture just describes this, this event, the completion of all of this work as a city. Revelation 21 describes it as a city, the new Jerusalem, as heaven comes down and connects to earth once again. Where all things are made new. Where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Forever. In glory. In that beautiful city. And scripture tells us that those who humble themselves, those who trust that Jesus is who he says he is, and repent of their rebellion, and ask to be healed, they will enter this paradise, they will enter this rest, they will enter this city. This is the fulfillment of all of our hopes. And Jesus says those who refuse to humble themselves, those who refuse to repent of their rebellion, will not enter the city, but will go someplace else. Jesus here calls hell. So let's talk about hell. The word that Jesus actually uses here is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is not describing a place underground where there's a shiny red demon with a pitchfork and hooves. Gehenna is actually a real place. It's a place on a map that Jesus' Jewish followers would understand. And even some of the context, the, the description of hell or Gehenna in this text is to help the Gentile hearers who wouldn't know where it is understand what that place is like. So Jesus is speaking of a real place called Gehenna, which is right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, Gehenna is referred to as the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom represents the site of Israel's most heinous, most complete rebellion against God. 
The Valley of Hinnom is the place where Israel's kings and where Israel's people would go to make sacrifices to other idols instead of to God, including sacrificing their own children. We're going to read about this in Scripture. A couple places I wanted to point out. The first is in 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz is a king, mind you. This is the leader of the nation. Ahaz even made metal images for the Baals, and the Baals are these false gods. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. The second passage comes from Jeremiah 32. This is a little longer, so bear with me, but there's, there's much to meditate on. Jeremiah 32. The city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who's that? Pretty much everybody. They have turned to me their back and not their face. That's a really interesting thing. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile them. They built the high places of Baal and the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. That's the Gehenna that Jesus is alluding to. Let's look again at how Jesus frames things in our passage. Essentially, he's saying you can enter the kingdom of God or you can enter the fires of Gehenna. You can enter the kingdom of God or you can through the fires of Gehenna. The former is the place where God reigns, and all things are as they should be. And the latter is the place where you and your idols reign. And in case you don't know it yet, that's a really dark place. The former is inside the city, New Jerusalem. The latter is outside the city walls. It and the people who refuse to humble themselves and let Jesus heal them are banished from the city. It simply cannot be there. And it's there that perhaps there's a bit of angst as we deal with this idea of hell. But there's a passage, there's a quote up on the YouTube that I think helps us understand this in light of what we've talked about. It's by a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler. Uh, I'm told that you all have uh, Joshua Ryan Butler coming for the first Wednesdays in September. Uh, he recently wrote a book called Skeletons in God's Closet, one of the subtitles of which is The Mercy of Hell. He does a great job in his book treating this topic specifically. I highly encourage you guys to go to that first September event with, with Josh. Um, at the very least, it will be thought-provoking for you, food for thought. At best, it will be a game-changer. So I'd encourage you to be there for that. This is what Josh says on this topic, this angst we feel 
about God not allowing, creating this perfect place where all things are as they should be, but banishing some outside the city walls into the place that Jesus describes as Gehenna. He says this, When God shows up, the reason sin is cast outside the city is because it stands in opposition to God's good and redemptive purposes for inside of the city. To ask God to redeem Jerusalem but not cast sin outside the city walls is like asking a doctor to heal your body without excising the disease. Like asking the light to arise without casting out the darkness. Like asking for restoration to come and destruction to remain. Now, Jesus says, it's better to enter the heavenly city with one hand than to be cast outside of it with two. Again, he's speaking in hyperbole here, and it's the hyperbole that makes his point. He's saying that to set your heart on a trajectory of the kingdom, to make willful choices that submit to God's plan for you and for creation, will oftentimes require you to deny yourself and make sacrifices of things that you feel like you will not be able to live without. He's not diminishing the value of a hand. He's recognizing the value of a hand. And he knows the challenges of living without one. But what he's saying is, your hand is important, but it's not life. Whatever you're holding on to, might be powerful, it might be good in some sense, but it's taking you away from the Lord and it is not life. And if you need to address it, you need to address it. And if you need to let it go, you need to let it go. And if there is sin that is taking you by the hand and leading you outside of the city and away from the Lord, and you can't get away, then cut off your hand like your life depended upon. is important, Jesus says, but it's not life. He's saying that there ought to be no ceiling to what we would pay to rid ourselves of sin because the value of the kingdom is that much greater. Sometimes all it will cost us is our pride. Are we willing to even sacrifice that? And when it comes to sacrifice and submission, our Savior, Jesus, does not speak empty words here. He is the one who sweat blood in the garden, wrestling with the will of the Father, knowing what God was asking of him to sacrifice, and who then went willingly to the cross to pay for the sin of the kingdom. Now I get that there is a, a danger here talking about the kingdom, talking about big ideas, talking about sin broadly, and dreaming of a city where there is no death, no war, no abuse, no hate, no injustice, no racism, no deceit. And imagining that as we watch the news and scroll through our Twitter feed and longing for the kingdom and saying, Amen, I cannot wait to get all of this sin out of the world. I cannot wait for the kingdom. I want to banish sin from all of this. And the question facing us is, do we want it out of ourselves? And, and how badly do we want it out of ourselves? 
We love to fight for righteous causes that are out there. But our flinch when we're angered by something out there should be to try to understand its root and then look forward to ourselves, whether it's big or small. Whether you're on Facebook and you're like, that was a rude comment, rather than just immediately attacking an injustice you see and the sin that you see out there, your flinch should be. There's seeds of that in here that I need to deal with. And on a huge level, as you deal with stories about Planned Parenthood, you need to ask yourself, there's seeds of that sin in here. Am I prone to consider people, born or unborn, expendable? As you watch tragedies unfold that deal with racism in our country, it's good to speak against it. Everyone should be, is there seed of that in here that I need to deal with? Do I hate it enough to give anything to get out of me? Because that sin that is out in the world is there because it's in you and I as well. And we can say that to everyone on this planet, all six billion of us, however many there are. That sin is out there because it's in you and I. And it's contributing to the brokenness of the world. Now, because of the whole counsel of Scripture, we know that it is not our ability to rid ourselves of sin that our entrance to the kingdom is based upon. Rather, it is our willingness to submit to Jesus and simply say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my rebellion. I can't heal myself. I can't. I can't do it anymore. I need you to do it. I need you to heal me. I know that you can. I know that you will. That trust, that submission of Jesus to Jesus as Savior and King secures our entrance into the kingdom. And He meets us there. He'll meet us there every time. Every single time, no matter what you have done, no matter what you will do, the sacrifice of Jesus has paid for it. And in the faith, we are united to Christ. We are united to Him. We are with Him. So that sin can no longer condemn us to death. Our place in the kingdom is secure because we're with Him. He's at the door. You're with me. Come in and enjoy. This is grace. This is the hope we rest in. But we get grace wrong if we think it somehow diminishes sin. Sin no longer has power to condemn us, but sin is still sin. Sin is still destructive. It is still dehumanizing. It is still the cancer destroying the world. It is still an act of rebellion against God himself. And for the Christian, it hardens our relationship with God. As God has invited us in and we've accepted the grace that he's offered, and he calls us into this process of growing and being cleansed and maturing, and we continually turn away from him, and we continually turn our back on him and choose our own way, it hardens our relationship with God. It puts barriers between he and us. And as a result... 
it stunts, it undermines the healing, the restoration, the growth, the maturing that God would have for us, which is the process that we call sanctification. And if you want to know what sanctification is, it's God getting sin out of us and preparing us for the place where there will be no sin. And that process is not complete in this lifetime. It will not be complete until Jesus comes back. But that is the process of, this, of the Christian life. The sanctifying process where we grow and continually address sin more and more. And we lose a taste for it more and more and our affections grow for him more and more. And sin is removed from our lives. And we become more and more like Christ, being conformed into his image, Scripture tells us. And through that, the image of God, which is distorted in us, is being restored to be like Christ, the perfect image of God. That's sanctification. But when we turn away from him, when we continue to reject him, it hinders that. And lastly, it, it undermines the witness of Jesus in this world. When people claim him, but are unwilling to follow him, unwilling to lose even maybe especially their pride. We will show the world how much we hate sin and how much we love the Lord and long for his kingdom. Not by protesting in some Westboro Baptist Church sense, or even a smaller sense of being quick to just blast everybody else's sin out there and being quick to comment on it. We will show the world how much we love the Lord how much we long for his kingdom and subsequently how much we hate sin. When we are people who are willing to sacrifice our pride, our plans, our possessions, all for the pursuit of holiness and the hope of the kingdom. As we leave here, our tendency will be, as it always is, to avoid conviction by rationalizing our sin and convincing ourselves that Either it's somebody else's fault, or it's really not that big a deal. My advice to you as you leave here is to begin to cultivate a heart that is sensitive to the things that you would normally brush off as small sins. Those insensitive Facebook comments, losing your temper with your kids, the objectification or dismissal of another person. Ask God to reveal those sins to you and be quick to repent. Be the first to repent when conflict emerges in your life. All of this to set your heart on a trajectory towards the kingdom. And that's not dismissal of the large issues that need to be dealt with as well. But let's start here. Set your heart on a trajectory towards the kingdom, even on those small um, to encourage you in this, I want to leave you with a quote by, who else? C.S. Lewis, of course. Um, it's a sermon about Lewis quote. So here, this quote is from Screwtape Letters, which if you have not read Screwtape Letters, uh, leave here and go buy it and read it, because it's fantastic. It is uh, a fictional account of two demons writing letters who are uh, tempting people who are prone to believe and follow Jesus 
and trying to pull them away from Jesus. Um, there's a, a senior tempter, a senior demon, and a younger one, and the senior one is giving the younger one advice. And here in this particular chapter, the subject of the demon is being drawn to the Lord, and, and the seeds of faith are beginning to sprout in him. And uh, screw tape. Uh, well, get this. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, which in this case is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun, on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. <coughs> now, let's not end dwelling on that. Let's, <laughs> let's consider the opposite, shall we? Let's consider the opposite. Consider the Christian who is quick to repent of even small sins. So that it does not even come to, quote, spectacular wickedness. The Christian who humbles himself or herself drawing near to Christ. The Christian who is moving not away from the light, but toward it. Living toward a heavenly city even now. So that people in this lost, tired world would be desperate to join them. As we pray, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer that many of you know. From Psalm 139. Listen to this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Perhaps for some of us, the idea of allowing God to search us and know our hearts and know our thoughts and challenge us on some of the things that he's going to find there is absolutely terrible. But one, it's a fallacy to believe that those things are not already open before him. And we also forget that he longs to heal us. He longs to get to those things so that he can save us from those things. And Jesus Christ has taken the punishment for our sin. And he now invites us into restoration so we pray, God, that you would search us you would know our hearts, that you would know our thoughts. God, see if there are any grievous ways. See if there are any ways that we turn from you. Our evil tendencies, our hatred towards people, 
or dismissal of people. Those things that we become enslaved to, Lord, rescue us from those things. Help us see sin for what it really and truly is so that we lose a taste for it. Lord, give us a new deeper sense of what it means to draw close to you. The sweetness of drawing close to you. The sweetness of the hope give us that. Jesus, thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you that sin does not crush us. Sin does not condemn us any longer. But we are free from it to follow you in the hope of restoration. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name.